0: You're listening to the Distinctive Christianity Podcast, where we clarify distinctions between Mormon and Credo-Christian thought. I'm Brendan, here with... Skylar. And round and round and round (laughs) and round we go. Oh boy. You know what we need? We need a suggestion box. Yes. Because it is the middle of August. And we are officially how many lessons into this? Thirty-five. Let's see. Thirty-six. If I can open this thing, something like that. Today will be number thirty-five. Yeah. We need to. We need to start thinking about what's next after this, because. I don't plan on doing a come follow me Book of, Book Mormon. of Mormon style sort of a thing here. So
1: we, we, we could just handle it in one lesson.
0: Guys, it didn't happen. Yeah. Just move on.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Let's get to the Bible.
0: Let us know if you are a yeah. faithful listener. What, what would be helpful for where you're at right now? What do you appreciate about the elements of the podcast? What are the strengths and weaknesses? And that'll help us shape it going forward. Yeah. And it's been a long time. Early on, we asked we asked people to do reviews, and we have not asked in uh-huh. like forever. So we had time, <laughs> yeah. Leave us a review. <laughs> Give us that five stars. Yeah. yeah. You know, on especially if you're on Apple Podcasts, it it does mm-hmm. help. As every podcaster ever has told you, it helps put us in the queue where people will be more likely to find our podcast. So please help us out by leaving us a like and a review and a good rating, and tell <laughs> us. How wonderful it is! <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, you don't have to do that, but you could at least give a five star. Right? Yeah, I mean, come on, it's yeah. just scrolling and clicking,
1: right? Totally. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I know we had an idea for a while of doing maybe a, a monthly get together. Yeah, we did. We did Yeah, I don't know.
0: Yeah, I, don't know. Um, I don't know, and I don't know the format for that. I just I yeah whether that'd be an in-person deal or yeah. like over zoom or something like that i just i recoil at the word zoom myself yeah after covid scars yeah so no same. anyway well anything exciting this week
1: you know i'm reading yeah 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 you know, just <laughs> a few books
0: here and there a few books
1: like a few new books
0: What you got over there? You got one over there on, uh, we were just talking about on the new perspective.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. So, um, well, first I guess if we're going to talk about last episode, I made the, I have no idea how I messed up, but I did. I put the correction in the show notes, but hopefully anyone listening to me,
0: I was at the show notes, people.
1: I clearly said the opposite of what I meant to say, you know? So I was saying, and I see uh, no one's saying God became a man. Yeah, and what I meant to say, <laughs> no one's claiming God was once a man. That's yeah, what I meant there to say. You go. Uh, no one's thought God became God, right? Glad you caught yourself on Oof, that one. Oh my goodness! When I heard that, I'm like, ah, oh, that is the most embarrassing yeah. slip. Oh up. yeah, yeah.
0: <sighs> oh, there's been a few times while preaching that I've said something heretical just because <laughs> like a word slipped out of my mind wrong or out of my mouth wrong, and right. what was in my brain. You know, was correct, but yes. what came out of my mouth was wrong. And in the moment you just keep moving. Like yeah. you don't even notice it. Yeah. And uh, I,
1: It was stunning yeah. when I heard it rewind. Heard yeah. it. Rewind like no way did I just say that yep. for yep. the whole world forever. Yep. Oh yeah. There was so. actually
0: I think something this past maybe a week or two ago where I did something like that while preaching. And it was just one line where I got one word mixed up and it made it total heresy. Or something. Yeah. It's just like, Oh <laughs> boy, Lord help me. Oof. Yeah. It's pretty rough. Wow. But we did cover the new
1: perspective. Really? We didn't really cover it. We mentioned it. We dealt with some of it. Yeah. Moved on. Really? We covered it's use by LDS. Mm-hmm. You know, it'd be its own thing. And, and frankly, there's as many new perspectives as new perspectivists. Yeah. There are. Um, and so it can get pretty complicated. But um, you said we got feedback on someone who appreciated it Oh, yeah, yeah. So there's a I I put in the show notes a list of books, and the ones that were, in my mind, the best at taking it on, which literally two of them were two volumes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. It was D.A. Carson's uh, um, Variegated Gnomism um, series, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then... Michael Horton's Justification series. But if you're looking for just one book that's eminently readable, and I think any any Christian should be able to read this, it's Justification Reconsidered by Stephen, I think it's Westerholm. He actually has a book I really like called Perspectives Old and New um, that deals with new perspective issues. It's one of the better books out there, I think, on it. But, mm-hmm. um, But anyway... Justification Reconsidered, Stephen Westerholm, if you want to read it, I think um, does a fantastic job for how short it, the book is. So
0: You know what I just noticed? Is I'm looking at our show notes, and it looks like it was probably a character limitation problem. Um, so just, just so you know, listeners, uh, Skyler, he goes all in on the show notes. Oh, yeah. And if you want to see the full show notes and you are using Apple Podcasts, just click on episode website that's right there under the show notes. And it'll take you to our actual website where you can easily view the full show notes. And so there may be a lot more there than people have been (laughs) noticing in the past if you're using Apple Podcasts. So go check it out. The show notes... I just, I'll just recommend, you know, Skylar works hard on those and they are extensive and they are kind of the, uh, they're an extension of this podcast, truly. And uh, they, they help fill in a lot of gaps or missing pieces or things that we just didn't have time to get to. So if you are one of those listeners and you're wanting to go deeper and you want more, then there's more. It's just there. You just need to, you just click on the show website, go check it out. And uh, yeah, maybe someday we'll actually, get our own domain and start posting them to our own website, but we'll see. You know, yeah, the future is bright, (laughs) right? (laughs) Yes. Something like that. So anyway, Hey, I, uh, I've got a new book in front of me. That is a new old book that, you know, I've read probably read a couple of times at this point. I I reference it so much now since I've moved out here, but uh, yeah, Christianity and liberalism it's so good by Jay Gresham Machen. You've heard us reference Machen many times, but Westminster Seminary Press just came out with a new edition of it. It's the 100th anniversary edition of this book, so still relevant a hundred years later. But I do you judge a book by its cover? I mean, be honest, like ever? I do. I uh, just yeah. I'm an art driven kind of person, and I judge cover art. And I have had you know until I'm blue in the face debates with people. Who throw away their book covers? Oof. Do you throw away your book covers?
1: I put them to the side when I'm reading. Oh,
0: do you? Now? I do. And then you put them back on? I do put them back okay. on. Okay. That's acceptable. Yes. That's You want to protect yes. it, right?
1: Yeah. I'll end up with a shelf full of covers. Yeah. Um, yeah. Apart from their books for a while. Yeah.
0: I'm just saying, if you throw away your book cover, <laughs> shame on you. Shame on you. Why would you throw away? art that somebody poured their heart and soul into. Good point. You know. Now sometimes I understand because it's like banner truth sort of stuff. It's like Yeah. you know Here's a red line across the page and a white line across the page, and that's how they do their cover <laughs> art. So that's that's nothing special, but yeah. man, when you get a this is this is it's beautiful. Nice. It's, it's nice. It's isn't a beautiful it? edition. I may have to get one yeah myself. Christianity and Liberalism. One thing we've talked about is actually potentially walking through this book um, yeah. ourselves. But I will say, if you are a go getter podcaster and need something in addition to this, their Westminster Seminary did just put out a podcast. That walks through Christianity and liberalism, uh, chapter by chapter, and yeah. uh, it's a great podcast. I'd recommend you go check it out. A lot of wonderful evangelical Christian thinkers uh, and scholars contributed to that podcast, and uh, yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's good. Reform so. Forum is also going chapter by chapter in a series. Yep. that they're doing as well. It's the the hour of Machen. It is this year. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. All right. Well, let's jump on into it. Let's do it. We are looking at 1 Corinthians 1 to 7 today and uh not so much chapter 7, you know, which is <laughs> they, interesting. Yeah, just ignore it it's, if you can. Seems to be a whole lot of focus on the <laughs> merits and godliness of singleness in that chapter yeah. and you know how in certain cases it's better not to marry and yeah. uh yeah, can't have
1: that if yeah, it's so, requirement. Yeah.
0: Anyway, I'm sorry. Yeah. We we try we try not to be too snarky on here, but, no, some, but I don't know what's happening. Yeah. All right, 1 Corinthians 1 to 7, and the subtitle here is Be Perfectly Joined Together. So you already are getting the sense that there's going to be a lot of focus on unity within this. We may get to bring in some J. J. Gresham Machen to help us think about biblical unity uh, here later on in the lesson, but... That's what the subtitle of the whole thing is. They begin with the instruction to the teacher teacher, by saying, Elder Jeffrey R. Holland taught that most people come to church seeking a spiritual experience. There you go. Uh, as you read 1 Corinthians 1-7, to prayerfully consider what you can do to help create spiritual experiences in your class. So, uh, yeah, I, that's... We we can't stop pointing this out because this is the fundamentals of the faith for for LDS people. And to be fair, uh, we would give the same sort of critique to a lot of evangelical Christian churches. Yep. Uh, you know, there was a big news story that just broke uh, about Saddleback Church in uh, uh, California, Rick Warren's former church, huge church. Uh, it's there's a whole bunch of drama behind that church because they just now got removed from the Southern Baptist Convention, which is the denomination that our church is a part of and uh, and cooperates in. And they were removed because they've begun appointing uh, female pastors, which we, we see as not being in accordance with the clear instruction of Scripture as far as who can be pastors and who cannot. And that may be something that we can cover at some point in time because that's obviously a hot-button issue in our culture. Uh, but just kind of covering what biblical complementarity looks like and uh, you know, even uh, comparing that to an LDS way of approaching gender roles, if we want to use those sorts of words. So anyways, but Saddleback Church, there are two new pastors, which is a, a married couple. They're new senior pastors. Uh, they came out on stage dressed up like little Bo Peep, and uh, some other Toy Story character, and they're like, you know, howdy, y'all. And they're doing a summer series that's, like, in the movies. And so in they the had movies? all this, yeah, drama drama stuff going on and, uh, you know, dressed up all cute and, and fun and stuff like that. So... Uh, we we would just to be clear, um, we I you know I believe that that Rick Warren's church I believe that more than likely the true gospel is preached there, but I'm gonna I mean obviously critique the the way that they are. Is so intentionally seeker sensitive and careless with the clear instruction of what the purpose of Sunday worship ought to look like. So just know, you know, we're, we're just as willing to critique internally as we are externally. And uh, uh, apparently that wouldn't be a very popular thing according to the unity lessons that are in this <laughs> manual. So, yeah. uh, anywho, but that you see that again, like the LDS faith is very uh, experience centric. How do you create exp- uh, spiritual experiences? And, yeah. um, yeah, so...
1: It's almost as if the personal experience for them is what authenticates their entire truth set. Yeah. Or, sorry, to put that a little better. It authenticates their Mormonism. Yeah. Um, if you didn't have the experience, even then they wouldn't say, well, it doesn't mean it's not true. What's wrong with you? If, you know, your head was in the right place, your heart was in the right place, you would experience it. Yeah. And uh, that's... That's pretty pretty different than you know, yeah, what biblical epistemology
0: is, yeah, for sure, and we'll we'll get into that more, I'm sure, in this lesson, so uh we jump on into the um, teach the doctrine section. We'll just skip the invite sharing this week. But we get into the teach the doctrine section, and the first section that they bring up is 1 Corinthians 1, 10 to 17 and chapter 3. And of course, each of those chapters are dealing with some of the issues that are happening in the church at Corinth. And namely, there are some divisions, factions, things of that nature that are popping up within the church because people are Choosing essentially their favorite leader and are are wrongly pitting these leaders against one another and uh, and so the the issue here is a sort of disunity um, in part, but there's there's a, a more to it than that, of course. But the uh, encouragement here in the Come Follow Me curriculum is the members of Christ Church strive to be united, and I think it's fascinating because the the way that they put that is. Uh, an internal unity that they're after, right? And that's good. Like we would encourage a sort of internal unity like that as well. But in, as you start to interact with their talks and their podcasts and things like that, they, they definitely expand it beyond the the members of the church being unified into how do we seek a general unity amongst other Christians as a whole. But yeah, they say in the in this section, discussing the first few chapters of 1 Corinthians may be an opportunity to build greater unity among warden members. You could start by asking class members to talk about a club, group, team, or other organization they belong to that had a great sense of unity. Why did this group feel so united? You could feel. then, yeah, feel so united. Feel so. You could then explore some of Paul's teachings on unity in 1 Corinthians 1 10 to 13 and 3 uh, 1 to 11. What are these verses, along with our experiences, teach about what helps create unity and what threatens it. What sacrifices do we have to make in order to achieve unity? What blessings come to those who are united? See also Sister uh, Sharon Eubanks' an analogy and additional resources. I'm going to do that analogy. Why don't we just go ahead and cover this section once I get into it, and then okay. we'll jump to the next ses- section after sounds, this. But Sarah Eubanks Eubank says uh, through an analogy – Rowers must reign in their fierce independence and at the same time hold true to their individual capabilities. Races are not won by clones. Good crews are good blends. Someone to lead the charge, someone to hold something in reserve, someone to fight the fight, someone to make peace. No rower is more valuable than another. All are assets to the boat. But if they are to row well together, each must adjust, adjust to the needs and capabilities of the others, the short arm person reaching a little further, the long arm person pulling in just a bit. Differences can be turned to an advantage instead of a disadvantage. So that's the analogy that they're alluding to. And they say Paul uses the image of building to encourage unity in First Corinthians three nine to seventeen. How could this analogy help your class better understand unity? For example, example after reading these verses together, you could give each class member a block and let them work together to build something. In what sense are we God's building? How is God's how is God building us individually? What are we being built? or what are we building together as fellow saints? What can we do uh, as a unified ward that we wouldn't be able to do as individuals? Okay. So Skylar, you want to go and make, just jump in and make some comments on that there.
1: Yeah. Well, it's, it's sense of unity. It's feel united. Um, Are they really that united? I here,
0: here's uh Here's the thing, what what is it they're united on? Yeah, I mean, that's what I would say. I would say, yeah, they, they probably are united in certain ways. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, we know that there's been problems with the unity of the church throughout the centuries. That's why there are so many factions and divisions and splinter groups that have broken off from the church. So there clearly has been consistent disunity. And one of the things that they, of course, critique in some of their literature is Protestantism here and all the different denominations. And they will say this clearly wasn't the plan that God had. I think I saw that in Richard Lloyd Anderson. He kind of went on a a bit of a rant on that in his book. And um, yeah, the, 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 of course critique towards Protestantism is why can't you be unified around anything? And the assumption is the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is unified on everything. Right.
1: And that's what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. And it's,
0: well, what do you do with those who were the members? And of course they're going to define them as, as apostates, which in many ways is more harsh, obviously than we would be towards somebody who holds to some of the same fundamentals, but is is of a different denomination. I mean, here, here are you and I, Presbyterian and Baptist sitting together because we're unified on what are the core things regarding the Christian faith. right? And so there's there's a, a level of disunity between us yes. um, on a convictional level, but there's going to be a level of disunity between every LDS person. Right. So what, what ultimately are those things that they would say, this serves as the foundation, the fundamental source of our unity? Can they even have a measure of clarity on that? Or is it just like, let's not talk about doctrines and beliefs uh, generally and kind of pursue a sort of natural unity that's on the basis of shared affinity. You know, we, we got these things in common, like golfing with this guy, Uh, you know, I like that this guy enjoys the same things I enjoy. So we have friendship and relationship or we're in the same season of life. And so we have unity around that, you know, like what, what is exactly the source of unity for the average LDS person. And, uh, we have to preach you know, to our church consistently about maintaining the right source of unity for, uh, even for Christians, but we can be clear on what that source of unity is. Um, it really is the truth of the word of God and mm. Christ himself that, Christ that crucified. unifies us. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the word of the cross, even. Yeah. You know, and that's the thing is, yeah, there's a plea for unity, but it's not a plea for unity for its own sake. And I don't think a true blue believing Mormon would think. That either I think they would want unity on some essential doctrines that many LDS to, that we've talked to would not say they believe anymore. Yeah, and so yeah, it's it, it's it's weird that they would spend so much time on that, and yet I guess they do say it, sense feel. I get the sense that if you affirm and sustain the fifteen, you could almost believe anything you want. And that's, you know, that's not trying to be unfair. I yeah. <laughs> I mean, the diversity of beliefs and commitments um, is pretty staggering, actually, given how correlated the material is and how there's been so much anxiety to hide the division even at the top that we know has never, they, they're not even that united. Yeah. Just, you know, read some of the more recent work on Benson and Hubie Brown. I mean, they are not united.
0: They yeah. hide their division. In fact, there's even a book, is in there, Quarles, Quarrel in Conflict, the Quorum? Conflict in the Quorum by yeah, Gary Conflict McGarris. in the Quorum. Fantastic book. Yeah. Uh, one of the best
1: books in Mormon history. Yeah. Um, but with Brigham Young and Orson Pratt. Now, I'm not trying to say their disunity disproves them anymore, just because, yeah, we have Christian disunity as yeah. well. But look at where we are united, and look at what unites Mormons, and you kind of see the difference. So, for example... Like you pointed out, Richard Lloyd Anderson uses this to say that um, there is no more biblical reason for merging the Father and Son than for thinking that Paul and Apollos physically merged. In his prayer for unity, already quoted, Jesus equated the oneness of believers with the oneness of the Father and the Son. So like the believers, the Father and the Son exist in glory now as individuals, uh, if the members of the Godhead, Godhead have achieved such intimate cooperation as individuals, the challenge of family and church members to do the same also seems possible. And I just want to say, this is in Richard Lane Anderson's section on First Corinthians. Does does Paul cite the, cite the Shema in this epistle? Yeah, he does. First Corinthians eight. There's only one God. So once again, I guess you know Christian unity monotheism is non-negotiable trinity christology gospels where you start to see some heavy division and then ecclesiology sacraments all that that's where you see the most division but we're united on a lot mormon unity if you, this is what's so interesting too, is if you if you talk to the Denver Snuffer types, mm-hmm. you talk to the fundamentalist types, you talk to the Julie Rowe types, you talk to LDS, you talk to the different the progressive LDS and the conservative LDS. What are they united on? Well, some form of works righteousness, eternal progression, some sense of temple progression, right and becoming gods. So polytheism is part of their unity yeah and so anyway i just think the perspective of what we're uniting around what we're uniting on it's it's weird to not even mention anything um and then i just can't help but point out when she says um sharon eubank no rower rower is more valuable than another is the profit not more valuable than anyone else yeah just, just curious sharon yeah um would you say the fifteen are more valuable than you know the fifteen people who had their names removed last week or whatever? Mm-hmm. I yeah, think, I think you would say yes. So yeah. this talk of equality, I think, is um, you know disingenuous.
0: Yeah, but it's popular. It is, and uh, you know, it's it's what a modern world wants to aim for, and the LDS Church really postures itself in a lot of its literature as this is going to be the church that is able to unite all people like yep. it's going to be the church that's going to be able to uh, bring this worldwide sort of unity that's never existed before. And I think that's a lot of what's related to the recent calls from Russell Nelson on being peacemakers, being unifiers, you know, being people who are not contentious. Yeah, Um, we we don't want to battle with anyone. We don't want to fight with anyone. And I've said it on the podcast before. uh, I'll say it again. But we we frequently get requests from LDS neighbors here at at First Baptist Church of Provo to participate in various. Uh, you know, interfaith choirs, interfaith gatherings—you know, all this sorts of stuff—and uh, you know, maybe some people are out there wondering to what extent can a uh, an evangelical Christian participate with an LDS person. Well, I think in terms of pursuing the common good of man in in uh, in a what would be considered a, a non-explicit uh, worship environment, where our attention is being turned toward praising and glorifying in a very direct and vocal way, the one true God, I think there's ways that we can partner with any fellow man. You know, I I can go with an LDS person and pick up trash off the street and, uh, and at the same time, have a conversation with that LDS person over the differences that we believe in terms of who God is. And so Mm -hmm. in that sense, we are unified in picking up trash on the street, but we're not communicating a unity in our belief yeah, and and that's where I think that there's a convoluted understanding oftentimes because if an LDS person wants to get get together and sing gospel hymns, well, we're singing to two different gods. So yeah. Yeah. There, there's a worship issue there that I would say the Old Testament prophets are very clear Yes, ought not to mix. Um, you know, Christians are not to participate in those sorts of, of what we see to be pagan worship rituals and worship that is rendered to a false god. Yeah. Um, and so there, there's a line that has to be drawn in the sand in terms of where we can unify and where we cannot unify. And I don't see that line drawn by modern LDS people. No. It's just kind of, let's participate on anything and everything, and we're all Christians, and we all believe the same thing. And you'd think they would prioritize it more. See, what
1: we're trying to communicate is we love God more than you. Yeah. Right? It's not that we hate you. Yep. We love God more. It reminds me of that recent Gospel Coalition article by Matt Amati. Yeah. Fantastic. I'll put it in the show notes. Give it a read. When he's trying to be a chaplain, he gets pressured to do this. He said, I can't do it. I I don't pray to the same God. I can't pretend we do. Yep. And and that why is that out of hate? No, it's out of love. It's love based on truth. The truth of the Bible. When we say Scripture, we mean the Bible, and by Scripture we mean Scripture. Meaning, it's above us, not below us. Yep. Uh, meaning, it judges us. We don't judge it. Um, yeah. And the God that is revealed therein requires uh, the devotion that would be clear as the distinctions with any other god even if they claim the same name yep right even if it's a golden calf we call yahweh um no just because they call their god their second Mm -hmm. member of the godhead who's a separate person and being um jesus doesn't mean it's the same jesus and I, i hope they hear it and frankly they should care Yep. <laughs> I don't know why they're as eager as they are. Cause I think you're absolutely right. They're very eager to make it seem like we're the same. Yeah. And um, I, th- I think it's an, un- maybe it's an intended consequence. It seems like an unintended consequence. Cause I don't think Russell Nelson would overlook that
0: difference. Yeah. I, I think I'm going to read some Jay Gresham Machen. Please. And <laughs> I'm going to read somewhat lengthy here, but it's just so good because remember, Jay Gresham Machen is dealing with a new progressive form of Christianity that he is identifying as completely unchristian it, it shouldn't even be considered the same religion as right. orthodox christianity mm-hmm. and we have drawn a lot of connections to how the lds church picks up on progressive christian arguments and practices to try to kind of blend into the mainstream of christianity so that they could be considered the same as us and gresham is saying in his book uh, we, we can't pretend like we're the same thing. We can't pretend like a progressive Christian is a Christian at all. And he says, "'Many indeed are seeking to avoid the separation. Why, they say, uh, may not brethren dwell together in unity?' Why can't we dwell in unity?' The church, we are told, has room both for liberals and for conservatives. The conservatives, and this is, of course, talking about theological liberals and conservatives, the conservatives may be allowed to remain if they will keep trifling matters in the background and attend chiefly to the weightier matters of the law. And among the, the things thus designated as trifling is found the cross of Christ as a really vicarious atonement for sin. Such obscuration of the issue attests a really astonishing narrowness on the part of the liberal preacher— Narrowness does not consist in definite devotion to certain convictions or indefinite rejection of others. But the narrow man is the man who rejects the other man's convictions without first endeavoring to understand them. The man who makes no effort to look at things from the other man's point of view. That's what true narrowness is. For example, it is not narrow to reject the Roman Catholic doctrine that there is no salvation outside the church. It is not narrow to try to convince the Roman Catholics that that doctrine is wrong. But it would be very narrow to say to a Roman Catholic, you may go on holding your doctrine about the church and I shall hold mine, but let us unite in our Christian work since despite such trifling differences, we are agreed about the matters that concern the welfare of the soul. For, of course, such an utterance would simply beg the question, The Roman Catholic could not possibly both hold his doctrine of the church and at the same time reject it, as would be required by the program of church unity just suggested. A Protestant who would speak in that way would be narrow because quite independent of the question whether he or the Roman Catholic is right about the church, he would show plainly that he had not made the slightest effort to understand the Roman Catholic point of view. The case is similar with the liberal program for unity in the church. It could never be abdicated by anyone who had made the slightest effort to understand the point of view of his opponent in the controversy. The liberal preacher says to the conservative party in the church, let us unite in the same congregation, since, of course, doctrinal differences are trifles. But it is the very essence of conservatism in the church to regard doctrinal differences as no trifles but as the matters of supreme moment a man cannot possibly be an evangelical or a conservative or as he himself would say simply a christian and regard the cross of christ as a trifle right to suppose that he can is the extreme of narrowness yep. it is not necessarily narrow to reject the vicarious sacrifice of our Lord as the sole means of salvation. It may be very wrong, and we believe that it is, but it is not necessarily narrow. But to suppose that a man can hold to the vicarious sacrifice of Christ and at the same time belittle that doctrine, to suppose that a man can believe that the eternal Son of God really bore the guilt of men's sins on the cross and at the same time regard that belief as a trifle, without bearing upon the welfare of men's souls? That is very narrow and very absurd. We shall really get nowhere in this controversy unless we make a sincere effort to understand the other man's point of view. A couple more lines. But for another reason, also the effort to sink doctrinal differences and unite the church on a program of Christian service is unsatisfactory. It is unsatisfactory because, in its usual contemporary form, it is dishonest. Whatever may be thought of Christian doctrine, it can hardly be denied that honesty is one of the weightier matters of the law. Yet honesty is being relinquished in the wholesale fashion by the liberal party in many ecclesiastical bodies today. Yeah. Machen cuts it Amen. straight. Amen. You know, it's, it's, the narrow thing is to not actually consider the other person's doctrinal claims and doctrinal beliefs and to just act like those aren't there. And uh, and persist in a unity that is not based on any conviction whatsoever, right? But is just based on a, a comfort, feel good comfort. Yeah, just the yeah.
1: stew of hedonism. I,
0: it, yeah, I mean,
1: I think this with love, right? See, they associate it's such an experience oriented culture, uh, such an experience based religion that it, you know, contention can shut them off right yeah. just just being passionate yep. uh, can cut them off and it's something to be sensitive to doesn't mean uh, you know be a jerk or whatever but yeah. one thing I would just challenge that with is is it really love apart from truth yep um, I <clears throat> I' maybe I shouldn't go into some personal family stories but I could yeah where somebody's reputation, somebody the feelings of people were prioritized above truth and accountability. Mm-hmm. And in the end, there's just deeper, deeper levels of pain and trauma as a result. Yeah. And um, so, yeah. Uh, once again, it's it's not that oh, you know, be jerks to everybody, but no, no, no. Is it really love apart from truth? Mm-hmm. You know. And is there can we be friends in spite of differences? Sure. Yeah. But could we be brothers? Could we be siblings? Yeah. No. No. You know? Yeah. <laughs> um, and but they think everybody is, right? Oh, no yeah. matter what. Yep. So yep. they it's just uh, yeah, anyway.
0: Yeah, the the basis of our unity is the truth. Um that's the that's the point we're getting at. And so to assume that there can be some form of unity, uh especially across the lines from an LDS perspective, which is pretty wide open, pretty universalistic. Uh, The the modern LDSism is very non-convictional, you know, very much like let's just do our best to all get along and be peacemakers and be non-contentious. Well, can a evangelical Christian who believes very clearly that you must worship the one true God, that you must worship the right God, that you must worship the the Christ who is God? and who is the monotheistic yeah. one and only true god and that if you don't worship that Christ as Jesus himself says in John 8:24 you will die in your sins and we love our fellow man, and we don't want our fellow man to die in his sins and to go to hell. Yep. And and so we, we must love by speaking the truth. We must seek to save the souls of sinners, and of course it's not us seeking, it's the power of the gospel yep. that ultimately saves. But we must do what God calls us to do, to be the messengers that bring the good news uh, that, that men might be saved out of their false belief, out of their wrong belief. And, uh, and so I just can't imagine any LDS person that would want to stay in an environment if they truly were convictional themselves, where they're being told, if you don't turn from your sin... Uh, you' you're going to go to hell. You, you really are. And, uh, and if I didn't turn from my sins, I was going to hell. And, and God by His grace saved me. And the good news of the gospel is that you can repent and believe the gospel and be saved. And uh, I just can't imagine an LDS person who would want to be in an environment that actually had convictional Christians like that, you know right. over the long haul. Um, and so what kind of unity are we talking about here? It would have to be unity where everybody just agrees to not believe anything, right? Ultimately,
1: Which is a belief in itself. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it, it certainly wouldn't be prioritizing God. Yeah, or the gods. Yep. Any way you you slice it.
0: Yep. Yep. For sure. Okay. Uh, let's move on. Uh, the next section is covering First Corinthians. 1, 17 to 31, chapter 2, and 3, 18 to 20. And all of these are uh, really passages of Scripture that are talking about the wisdom of God and contrasting that to kind of the natural man and his his, uh, inability to discern the wisdom of God. So, um, let me just read, I think just for a sample here, First 1 Corinthians 117 and following to give us a taste of what's going on in the text here. Uh, before I read the LDS portion. For Christ did not send me, Paul writes, to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For the Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are being called... Both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Notice the antithesis there between God and man. Yep, yep. I'm just gonna cut it, cut it there because that gives an idea oh, of, so of the idea of, of what's going on here. But here's uh, here's how things go here. In the LDS curriculum. Here's an idea to help your class rely on God. Divide class members into groups and ask them to scan these passages, searching for words like wise and foolish. Then they could share in their groups what these verses teach about being wise in the Lord's work. Notice how they're immediately turning uh, to the Lord's work. What are teachings about the gospel that might seem foolish to some people? How do these things demonstrate the wisdom of God? Perhaps class members could also share experiences in which they trusted God's wisdom rather than their own to accomplish his work. Um, so not much focus on, again, the content, the nature of the gospel, Christ crucified, uh, more so like how do we pull from these principles to learn about what it looks like to do Christ's work. So, uh, again, that that's just by by... The nature of the fact that they uh, believe the gospel is the work that you do, and yep. not really Christ crucified. Um, but I do hope that, based on, I mean, just the plain reading of this text and classes doing this, I hope that people see the beauty of Christ crucified, right? Because <laughs> it's such a clear text, it you is. know, on on that the the fact that the gospel is the power to save, and the gospel is Christ crucified. Uh, for sinners. Uh, he yeah. is your hope of salvation. It's not what you do. It's what, what Christ has done for us. Um, but you had some notes just on like, again, LDS epistemology that they use, uh, some of these passages to, to cover that I'll yeah. just turn it over to you to take and run with. Well, let me just read this.
1: Um, Richard G. Scott, we haven't covered him in a while. He was an LDS apostle who died in 2015. And um, we, we mentioned him. He's our guide when it comes to impressions. And I don't know if he, there's a predecessor earlier, but the way he talks, man has it influenced how the lessons are structured and emphasized and the content in them are emphasized. This is from his talk, How to Learn by the Spirit that they include on this lesson. You can learn vitally important things by what you hear and see and even more by what you feel. Even more yep. by what you feel, as prompted by the Holy Ghost. Many individuals limit their learning primarily to what they hear or read. Be wise. Develop the skill of also learning by what you see, and particularly by what the Holy Ghost prompts you to feel. Consciously and consistently seek to learn by what you feel. Your capacity to do so will expand through repeated practice. Significant faith and effort are required to learn by what you feel from the spirit. Ask in faith for such help live to be worthy of such guidance. Whoa. Yeah. (laughs) And, and I I said this to you, right? They, they include a talk I'll put in the show notes with from um, uh, Boyd K. Packer, uh, another LDS apostle and who, who in a talk, recounts a story of him getting into a conversation with an atheist who's challenging. How do you know? Right. And and how, what does he do? What's his response? Is it to go into what is knowledge epistemology, the scriptures, the value of history, right? God's acts in history is authenticating the claims. No, it's bear a bold testimony, based on your conviction and somehow that subjective commitment will, I don't know, somehow move the other person to, I don't know, consider your view or yeah, I don't, I don't, (laughs) as someone who uh, did this before in my life, it's weird to think about because it's like, what am I trying to accomplish? It really just makes it about you. Honestly, that's my opinion. Um, If I, when I look back, and I think of man. I knew as sure as I, you know, all the 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 words you see, as sure as I live, or whatever. Yeah. the Book of Abraham is true, and it's like, look, it's it's not. Yep, it's not. It's not translated. He, where we can check Joseph Smith's translation, he didn't get a single word right. Mm-hmm. It's that simple. Yeah, I mean, there's no. If ands, buts, asterisks, no. you nibbly can, you know, write a thousand pages dancing around the brute fact that anyone that can read Egyptian, just read the facsimiles. Mm-hmm. It's not the book of Abraham, nor could it be, let alone could it be written by the hand of Abraham, like Joseph Smith claimed. So what good was my feelings? Yeah. Like actually, I mean, I and I, I could go on. I could go on for hours on the book of Abraham. Yeah. What good were my feelings? Yep. I mean it it messes with you when you think man I just had to testify and this and you know and then what's the retreat? Well I like what it teaches. Yeah. I like this. I like that.
0: What what so what? Yeah. So what? Maybe maybe what you like is wrong. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> We're we are not anti feelings. We're not no. anti emotions. Um, we just believe believe. Uh, you know that's a difference too, right? Yeah. Um, yep. We're careful to not say I know, I know, I know, I know, I know everything. Uh, we yeah. we believe that uh, you need more than your feelings to authenticate the truth, and that's the purpose of the eyewitness testimony of the apostles. That's I mean that's the the purpose of God giving us His Word, yep. which is uh, an objective revelation of Himself to us, so that we can know Him um, in an objective sense by studying the words. But of course, all of our belief is ultimately rooted in the in the historical facts of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection, and uh, and not just that, but even God's acts in history beyond that. Yeah. That the Israelites were actually testifying to true acts that that occurred within history. Um, and that is even authenticated by true archaeology mm-hmm. that, uh, that defends many of the biblical stories and claims and, and you know, that you don't have a problem with, um, with things being, you know, untimely within the, the narrative or, uh, you know, anachronistic or anything like that. So um, th- things fit. And so there's an objective case that can be made for the faith. There's a reasonable faith. That's there. And we've talked about how that's essential. You know, you ought to be able to uh, have some sort of justification for your knowledge. What is your justification for knowing? And you ought to have some sort of objective basis on which you can build that. And uh, for us, it is that Jesus ultimately really came, lived, died, was resurrected, that eyewitnesses saw him resurrected, eyewitnesses saw him ascend into heaven. And those eyewitnesses, eyewitnesses testified about him, the truth of who he is. And those were the apostles that he laid out to found the church. And they wrote down the testimony that we would know who who Jesus is and the things that are true, and that everything links to that. And uh, nothing in the faith is allowed to contradict the testimony of the eyewitnesses. And, uh, and, and we depend upon that for Uh, our justification of knowledge, we depend upon the fact that God has revealed himself Ultimately, uh, yes, through his word and also through the word, Jesus himself, and, uh, and so we can know him. Now, we've got subjective elements to our faith, too, and yes. we've mentioned this again. And, and I often go to this passage to, to tell people and teach people about some of the subjective elements of the faith, that ultimately the word of the cross is folly to those who don't believe. Right. And so there's a sense in which you believe. Uh, this is a subjective uh, indwelling of the Holy Spirit that uh that is hard to put I mean it's a it's actually an objective occurrence is happening um, in the Holy Spirit indwelling, but uh, it's it's subjective in the way that we, we receive it in, in a sense and so it's you know it's difficult to uh, put a finger on like why you believe except for the fact that God has revealed himself in the word and that helps you understand the things that happen to you in your life at various points in time but uh, it, it is, subjective but mm-hmm. it's not subjective alone right you know it's it's authenticated by objective truth
1: right the faith is not my subjective commitment to it yeah right i mean uh i mean think about it even this way right who are the people who defend the book of abraham that i just mentioned the lds book of abraham are only people who believe it yeah bart ehrman thinks jesus christ was crucified <laughs> yeah and he's the most antagonistic voice out there, yep. <laughs> at least in the English-speaking world, toward Christians, right? So notice the difference, right? <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think what is Christianity? It's the truth of the Christian faith, of course. Assumption of monotheism, the Trinity, right? All revealed by the Scriptures. The Trinity, Jesus, the real Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Gospel. Right. It's yeah. The subjective is a commitment to those things, but whether what I feel about it doesn't change what it is. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Uh, and I, I don't know how to, whereas with Mormonism, I mean, they just, okay, you're committed to it. That yeah. doesn't mean it's true. Yeah. I, any more than my commitment to this means I'm right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't know how to get, I don't, I just, this is a frustration mind. Um, not in all conversations, but many conversations, how to get away from, okay, you're committed, I'm committed. Can we debate this now? Can mm-hmm. we discuss it? Yeah. And it's hard for me to do anyway yeah. consistently. Yeah. He's get away. Okay, fine. I, I grant you're sincere and committed. I hope they grant I'm sincere and committed. Can we get to the real meat of the conversation now? Yeah, yeah.
0: What is... uh the danger of not having anything objective to build your faith upon, but just having subjective knowing. Well, according to our objective truth in the Bible, uh, you subject yourself to all sorts of demonic influence. For one, yeah, uh, you know the the Bible reveals that that uh, Satan is crafty. He's the father of lies. He uh, he thwarts the human mind. He works through the foolishness of man to promote an agenda. And if you are depending upon spiritual experiences, we wouldn't negate that you're going to have spiritual experiences. Yeah, there's you, plenty. You can have all sorts of <laughs> spiritual experiences. Right. In any religion. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a reason why Wicca is on the rise again. Yeah. You know, right. and ancient paganism is on the rise again, and it's get, it's getting really popular here in Utah. Yeah. And uh, it's because if you go and mess with the Ouija board, which we, of course, would say don't do that, but if you do, there's there's... Evil spirits and there's going to be spiritual experiences and things of of that nature that are going to be involved in that. We we don't negate the fact that there are spiritual things that are happening in the world that there are entities that are moving about and are exercise exercising power um, in the real you know interaction with the physical world. And so um, that's I mean that's one thing. But but another thing is I mean just on a basic level of the debased mind, you know, the, the wicked mind, the, the mind that has been affected by sin. Uh, I, I don't even trust yourself psychologically. You know, yeah. like you, you, if you're in a lost state, like what Paul's talking about here, uh, before God opened your minds to understand the truth, um, you, you're susceptible to having your feelings swayed in any and every direction over any and everything. And it doesn't have to even make sense from a logical perspective, Um, you know, and, and some of that is, is just uh psychological, you Mm -hmm. go, go, go to a Foo Fighters concert, you know, or, or (laughs) I don't know who would do that, but you know, (laughs) like go, go to a a music concert, you're going to feel something, you know, and, and that feeling can sway you to believe something that's not true very easily. Um, you can be in a crisis in your life and hear a certain musical song, that you feel like you just relate to and and without even realizing it, you're embracing what that artist is saying is true um, without giving it second thought. It just, it connects with you. And so you run with it. Right. And, uh, and so you're susceptible to believing all sorts of things that could or could not be true if yep. all that you're dependent upon is feelings. Yep. And, uh, of course it's, it's what Disney wants you to believe. Um, Maybe what Angel Studios wants people to believe too. I, I don't know. But uh, that's the that's the culture we live in. Feels good, is good, is true. Yep. Go for it, right?
1: Yep. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, it uh, seems cliche, but uh, the rise of many political movements that have been super destructive have been based on this same epistemology yeah. and rooted in the same fake history. I mean, yep. people do not recognize the fake history needed and the commitment subjective commitment to that fake history for movements all around us yeah. that are destructive yep um and just nazism is one example right of yeah. this mythic aryan race and jesus was aryan and how all this stuff um you know the jews are the parasites based on this they have a history they have a they have um an end times view; they have a view of time. I mean, it, it can seem so convincing because it can account for so many things in the world, and yet, look at the consequences. Regardless of, you know, whether wanting to improve the world or whatever, look at the consequences. And we have that here in Utah. We have that in these some of the in some, not all. I'm not trying to be unfair. Some of these LDS subcultures. Yeah, I I do. If you listen to even in the trial of Lori Daybell, right? Lori Vallow, <laughs> listen to the Mormon theology mm. that informed those decisions. Yeah, I'm not saying everybody that believes in Mormon theology will do those things. What I'm saying is she believed those ideas and felt they were true. Yeah, she for, felt them. For listeners who may not know what you're talking about, just give the brief. They might down. know more than <laughs> yeah, yeah. They might. Uh, I mean, it's just. You know, it's one of these doomsday cults. They get into prep, they get into Julie Rowe, they get into Chad Daybell. They have some of the early Mormon teachings, but they actually make them into systems. So um, they have multiple mortal probations, but they think, oh, I can feel my way and find people who have married in previous lives. Mm -hmm. And um, that's what happened. And, of course, two spouses had to die, uh, you know, so that they could... Marry again in this life and they felt strongly about it. Yep. Yep. Um my point is is this is the same epistemology. Yeah. That's my point. That's right. It's you know, by God's grace, his restraining grace. Most LDS don't go there, but
0: how can you not see the similarity in what they would do to promote their views? Yep. I mean, I I there are it's just known that there are LDS people who have uh, made the claim that they had an adulterous affair because God told them to. Yeah. It was a revelation that they received, yeah. a personal revelation. And ultimately, if you boil down the epistemology all the way to the bare roots, you can't deny that they can say that. Yeah. You know, of course you can say that. Yeah. Um, because ultimately it is. Uh, a, a religion that is based on your subjective knowing yeah. and uh, who, who are you to negate the knowledge that somebody else is claiming? Right.
1: Personal revelation, all that. Yeah. And,
0: and this is not, I'm not just throwing stones here. The worst
1: decisions in my life have been informed by this epistemology. Yeah. This is what I used to do. Yep. This is what I used to do. Yeah. I mean, this is not, this is not other. Yeah. I get it. I've been in this. <laughs> I, and I, I mean that some of the, the, if not the worst decisions of my life have been based on this feel revelation. I feel strong as surely as I live today or whatever,
0: all this stuff, Yeah. all this stuff. I have no patience for it for that reason. Yep. The last section that they cover is first Corinthians six, nine to 20. And the lesson uh, subtitle there says our physical bodies are sacred. And uh, we don't even have that much time to get into that, but. Man, it would be really good to do a doctrine of the body at some yeah. point in time. So yeah. anyway, let me turn out. You have any loose ends because we're about out of time here. Kay. Just any any final things you want to touch on before we wrap it up? We're going to
1: be in this for three weeks in 1 mm-hmm. Corinthians. There is actually an academic commentary by Richard Draper, who I believe I've met his son. If I'm not mistaken, his son is an academic psychologist, a professor of psychology, who also has some interesting work. But anyway, um, and it is it is really helpful. He's done, it, it, it's just nice to deal with something that's not just institute like David Ridges, but is actually trying, doing the academic route in a commentary. And I've got, of course, too much here, but let me just outline just going forward the you know, only one general authority in all of LDS hit Mormon history has commented systematically on this epistle, and that's Bruce R. McConkie. Of course, you know, he's out of favor now. But um, the four most quoted chapters in LDS history, this is, this is an index that's looking at general conference talks. Number one is chapter 15. With six, as of 2015, 609 citations. The most cited verse and you, you guess this, we'll get to this in two weeks, uh, the most cited verse in LDS general authority history is 1529 on baptisms for the dead. Um, number two is chapter two, which we'll cover here. Um, I'll put some stuff in the show notes if we can't get to some of how they've interpreted that over time. Uh, number three is chapter 12, which would make sense, especially in the early Mormon history when charismatic gifts were all over the place and heavily encouraged. Uh, chapter 13 is number four, with 209 citations. So chapter 15 is by far the most popular for LDS leaders, largely for this one verse. <laughs> That's not even the main, <laughs> yeah, it's just kind of interesting. Um, if you look at their chapter one, the verses they focus on is 21 and 27. And the idea that they have focused on there has been that the wisdom of the world has just confused people about the simplicity of the Godhead. Mm-hmm. Um, and that this this has led to the apostasy, you know, a bunch of academics trying to make everything confusing, you know, like Augustine and Aquinas, they're just the worst ever. And uh, Calvin and whoever, Bob Inc. And I mean, let me read this. This is from one of the LDS presidents of the church, short quote, it's, it's a lengthier one, you know, but let me just quote this a little bit that um, the fact is the world through their wisdom know not God and have lost sight of and forgotten the simplicity of our fathers and the plainness of the gospel, right? So they use the weak things to emphasize how, I guess, very simple this stuff is, Mm -hmm. which I don't know. There's just there is something simple to it, but there's there's also God we're talking about. Like I don't, yeah. I don't to me the the expectation that the gods are going to make complete sense to us um, when we're dealing with the creator of all things. Uh, once again, though, they don't have that. They have, yeah, they have a group of organizers of some things. Mm-hmm. So it's it's just anyway. That's that's their chapter one. Their chapter two is once again just emphasizing revelation, the deep things of God through revelation. Um their chapters 3 and 6, which is this last point, the land on that temple, your body is a temple point. Yeah. And here they um it is weird though because the whole what's Paul's point is that the church is well in first Christ is the temple. We have that in the gospels. Yeah. The church is you know one of one of the ways it's spoken of is the bride mm-hmm. to, of Christ. And then another one is that it's the body, this union of Christ that you've you've emphasized quite a bit, and mm-hmm. rightly so. And um this is um you know weird because they'll they'll bring that up and then jump immediately to word of wisdom or law of chastity. Mm-hmm. Um So, though these verses, this is uh, Draper, uh, though these verses are referenced or alluded to more than 100 times in conference addresses, none of the leaders use them in the sense that Paul did. I thought that was a stunning admission from the BYU New Testament commentary series. I, I applaud the honesty. Great, but that's not a dig. I I hope more of this work happens, right? That is as referring to the corporate church, not to individuals. Paul's emphasis that it is the corporate church in which the spirit dwells is a very important doctrine that has been largely ignored. And, of course, speaking of this. But here's something typical, and I'll put the citation in the show notes. John Taylor, we haven't mentioned him in a while. He's the third president of the church. Listen to this quotation, how he uses uh, this um, temple-body connection. The apostle said, Grieve not the spirit of God by which you are sealed to the day of redemption. Do not grieve it. Do not sin against God. Do not violate his laws. Do not corrupt yourselves. Do not corrupt your bodies. For are they not, as one has said, the temples of the living God? Do not allow your spirits to be contaminated and led astray from correct principles. But cleave unto God in all humility, fidelity, faithfulness, observing his laws, and keeping his commandments. You know, Just do that. And uh, then you'll be holy enough, I guess, for (laughs) to be a temple <laughs> mm-hmm. oh my goodness chapter four um this is interesting that hardly a this is a quotation the intriguing aspect of chapter four is that hardly a single lds leader is referred to any part of it after 1940 interesting so Earlier leaders did identify with some of the persecution theme, and in their manual, they did say the seminary manual for teachers. That is, they did say one thing you could focus on is you know teaching. You know, be careful not to judge church leaders. We don't want to be judging church leaders or criticize them. Do not criticize your leaders. Okay. Um, chapter five. This is interesting. They'll they'll use a little leaven. Uh, that verse. Yeah. What's the full thing? A little leaven leavens a whole lump. Exactly. That's it. Now, that's what's interesting. They will use that as a positive in terms of LDS influence in the world. (laughs) So this is Draper. Those who have used this phrase have ignored Paul's point that condoning cinema members can greatly damage the church and said some leaders have used the phrase to show the influence of the church upon the world. It kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. And then we've already covered six. And then I just want to point out, and, uh, you know, I'll try to outline these as we go through these chapters just because, you know, I can build upon someone who's already done some of this work. Chapter 7 is basically ignored. In fact, in all of general conference history, it's cited 12 times. Mm. And I, uh, that's incredible. So just a comparison, chapter 15, 609 times, chapter 7, 12 times. Yeah. <laughs> it's the, so, which makes sense, right? Given yeah. what Paul says about singleness. Yeah. And, yeah.
0: <laughs> Chapter 7, verse 8 To the unmarried and widows, I say it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn them with passion. Right. We could talk about an interpretation of this stuff from an evangelical perspective. Yeah. I, I don't think that Paul is actually elevating singleness as better than marriage. No. Um, I think that he's just saying there's a godly place for remaining single and there are times and seasons in which it is wise to remain single. Yes. And, uh, of course we've already covered that, that Jesus himself teaches about a godly celibacy, um, you know, a, an abstaining from marriage for the sake of the kingdom that is good. And so, uh, evangelical perspective has categories for honoring singles and seeing singles as, as, uh, as vibrantly contributing to the kingdom of God. And even having advantages over married people in certain ways and being freed up to uh, serve the kingdom in ways that uh, sometimes married people can't. so it's good stuff like reading you know lots of books yes and uh, stuff like that so <laughs> right. lots and lots and lots right and lots of books. So.
1: on the temple point, I will plug. The Temple and the Church's Mission by G.K. Beale. Yeah, um, unlike what you may hear on certain LDS podcasts, G.K. Mm-hmm. Beale would not agree with LDS temple theology. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, some I, uh, people with degrees that actually you know teach at institutions not far from here. Yeah,
0: uh, recognize oh, yeah. that. Yeah, yep. <laughs> like in a recent interpreter podcast. Yeah, yeah, maybe there. Yeah. yeah, where you give a nod to G.K. Beale's name, but then don't articulate any of his work no. and just say you read his book, but then go on and talk about LDS temple work being so vital to the unity of the church. Yeah. And, uh, anyway, GK, yeah, GK Biel Biel, you should actually agree. read him. Yeah, you know, he's definitely. a reformed thinker. Yeah. You know? Yeah. He
1: is. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he's, I don't think he's the debating type. Yeah. But maybe. man, wouldn't it be awesome for him to debate the temple, oh. temple theology oh. with anybody, Dan Peterson. Yeah. Let's, let's hear it, man. Let's hear it. You don't like debating anymore. Let's hear you debate, Dan Peterson. (laughs) Love
0: it. All right. Well, next week we'll be looking at 1 Corinthians 8 to 13. Ye are the body of Christ. Look forward to it. We will see you then.